If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them up to Luke chapter 15. We'll be starting at verse 11, reading through 17, and be reading from the King James Version. Talking about Jesus here, and he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to, to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? No tears in heaven. Well, it's one of the most beautiful songs that we can sing. I appreciate that song. I'm so thankful for us to be able to sing a praise like that and think about what's going to be one day if we're only but faithful. No tears in heaven. Look around our lives and we see things, even if our lives are wonderful, we see things that could be better and some things that hurt us, but no tears will be in heaven. That is a beautiful song. The parable of the prodigal son is one of the most beloved uh, parables that we have recorded for us. It's composed of 22 verses, which makes it the longest parable that the Lord spoke. It's been called the prince of all parables. It's been called the pearl and the crown of all the parables. Charles Dickens celebrated as the finest short story ever written. When Jesus told this parable, though, He was responding to an accusation leveled against Him. The charge was that he receives sinners and eats with them, Luke 15, 2. To demonstrate their sinful attitude uh, that the Pharisees had, he responded with three parables. He told of a shepherd who had lost a sheep and then said, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Then he spoke of a coin that had been lost and upon it being found, he said that there is Joy in the presence of the angels of God because of even one sinner who repented. And then he told this story or this parable about the lost son and what true repentance means. And he made application to that, of that to all of us. When we read this parable of this lost boy, we're going to notice a great contrast between the attitudes of those of whom the Lord spoke. I believe normally when this parable is studied, we go into it or the reader enters it with kind of a prejudiced view against the young son. Or at least I have. We look at the young son and we look at him as a sinner who must repent because he has gone astray. And of course that is the case. He is a sinner. He needs to repent as we begin reading the story. He needs to turn his life back to the Father and be what... The Father needed him to be. But I think if we go into any study with a predetermined destination of where we will end up, I think we certainly miss a few things along the way. 
As we begin our study this morning, let's do it by asking a question. This is what I have entitled the sermon, Who is Lost? Who is Lost? Let's ask that question. I think if we do that, we can come away with a clearer understanding of exactly what the Lord has left for us to come to understand. I think as we look at it, we may even see for the first time some things that we have overlooked in the past. And I think we can make application to our own lives. So as we ask this question, who is lost? Of course, the first person we come to is the Son. The Son is lost. There's no doubt about it. And like anyone who is lost, He became lost because of His rejection of the Father. Jesus said this, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth me. Now I want us to understand it is important to know that it was the son who went to the father and asked for his inheritance. If the father had decided to divide his goods among his sons, there would not have been one thing wrong with that. It would not have been shameful on the part of the younger son to have accepted his one-third of the inheritance. But, it was shameful for the younger son to come to his father as if he were to say, I'm sick and tired of waiting on you to die. I want what's coming to me. Well, in their culture and in ours, I believe the father would have been scorned for rearing such an ingrate as that. I've known of that happening, and many of you probably have as well. But Jesus continued, He said, and He divided unto them His living. Now this word living is, is an important living, uh, important word. It's translated from the word bios, means life. He was dividing His life to His sons. He had worked, and He had labored, and He had been an honorable man, and he divided his life and gave it to these two boys. I don't think it's a coincidence to understand that God gave his life so we could have an inheritance as well. Now this must have been some inheritance. We get the sense that this man was an extremely wealthy man. Notice that he had hired servants. He had fancy clothing, he had jewelry, and he had that fatted calf that only wealthy people had on hand at all times. In his rejection, we see that the son not only wanted out of his father's house, he wanted out of his father's sight. He didn't want to live in the sight of his father and do the things he intended on doing. Now most of the time, a person does not want to commit a sin in front of those of whom they respect. We normally want to hide that, don't we? We want to sneak around in the dark and we want to do things and, and we don't want people to know about it. You know the very first daytime robbery in the United States took place on February the 13th, 1866 in Liberty, Missouri? Why was that so much different from any other uh, robbery that had taken place? Robbery wasn't something new in 1866 because it was done in daylight time. It was done right in the very presence of anybody that cared to look. 
Solomon said, The way of the wicked is as darkness. Proverbs 4, verse 19. After having received his inheritance, though, this ungrateful son likely liquidated it for pennies on the dollar. When it says, gathered all together, carries with it the idea of turning everything into cash, into spendable money, into coins, or whatever it was they used at that time. I want us to notice he had no respect whatsoever for the hard work and the dedication that his father put into building his life. He simply wanted the money. And he wanted it without having to work for it. With little delay, we see that he began his journey into the far country. He left with a pocket full of money. And because of his rejection of the Father, he was searching for some gratification. The Lord said this, verse 13, In not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance, wasted his inheritance. Not only did he show poor stewardship over that which he was blessed with having, he wasted a lifetime of work. He wasted the effort and the time that the Father put in to being able to give him that inheritance. Like the chaff of wheat, he threw that money away, never to be seen again. I want us to notice what Solomon said. Proverbs 23, verse 5. He warned, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. But what exactly happened to all that money? We know that he wasted his wealth, but, but how did he waste it? Well, the Lord said, with riotous living. Well, what does that mean? That means to live without restraint. To live without restraint. Not being able to hold oneself back from doing those things that God does not want us to do. We have to be able to say, I'm going to be man enough, I'm going to be woman enough, I'm going to be Christian enough, to I'm going to live the way God wants me to live, and I'm going to have restraint in my life. Isn't that the Christian life? Having restraint, holding oneself back, so we can have no more tears? There's not going to be any tears in heaven, but there will be a lot of tears shed in hell. To live riotous, meaning to live without restraint. Peter reminded his readers of something. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4. Let's notice what the apostle said. Read with me 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4. He reminded them, saying, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Peter called it excess of riot, as he characterized it by those things which he listed. Now I want us to be sure and understand 
that when he speaks of excess, he is not saying a little bit of rioting is okay. That's not what he's talking about. Many use this passage to support the the known doctrine of social drinking because he said excess of wine. But excess of wine means the same thing as excess of fornication. Anything beyond that which is allowable or needed is excess. Now let's look at an example of that. Notice 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul told Timothy, he said, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Paul prescribed for Timothy alcoholic beverage. He did that because he had some kind of a problem in his gut. And it needed to be killed out, some kind of a bacteria some kind of an infection. Something was wrong with his stomach. So Paul said, Do not do as you normally would do, drinking water, but drink a little wine. He prescribed it for medicinal purposes. Anything beyond that would have been excess. Someone gives us a a pill to help with pain. We go to the doctor and they give you a pill and they say take one every four hours as needed. And then you take one and you think, well, that's pretty good. I think I'll take one in 30 minutes and that'll even be better. So now what I'm doing is I'm taking medication because I like it. I like the feeling it gives me. People drink because they like to be drunk. They like that feeling it gives them of relaxation. I was doing a little research on this. Within 45 minutes of drinking an alcoholic beverage, you have this wonderful sense of relaxation. Well, who doesn't want that, right? Everybody wants a sense of relaxation. Everybody wants to be able to sit down and not worry about the worries of the world and the the burdens that we have to carry. But we have to have restraint in our lives if we're going to be Christians. And we carry those burdens to God. We do not go into excess of riot. A little bit of riot is not acceptable. Neither is a little bit of alcohol. Anything beyond what is meant is excess. But I want us to also notice that this young man, this son, he wasn't alone in his gratification at the cost of his father, was he? Boy, he had friends and friends to spare. When he had money, he had friends. They were willing to eat up his father's life savings They were willing just to lay around with him and not work and do things of that nature. Solomon warned this, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 11. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. If you got a lot of money, you're going to have a lot of friends wanting to eat your bread. And what good there is to the owners thereof saving beholding of them with their eyes. How does that help the one that's got the money? All he can do is watch him eat up his stuff. And this young man who obviously was not in his right mind because we learned that he came to himself, allowed that to happen. But it was at this point, when his money ran out, so did his friends. And he went from gratification to deprivation. He lost it all. He went to living with the pigs. 
he would have eaten what they were eating if he had been allowed to have done that. He was starving. But he came to himself. He said, what am I doing here? There's no doubt in my mind that when he left, he had a pocket full of money. He had great feelings in his mind. And he said, boy, the future looks promising. Much like the foolish farmer. Oh, I've got plenty. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to tear down my old barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to live forever. I'm never going to die. And this is never going to end, Luke 12, 13 through 21. But he came to himself when he was sleeping with the pigs. Sometimes we have to sleep with the pigs before we come to ourselves. I was working with a young man in Memphis, Tennessee. I met him. He came to the church service. I began to study with him. He obeyed the gospel. I found out he was living in a tent out behind the building on the railroad track. And so I studied with him, and and uh, he did, I just let him live in the tent. Well, it became a storm one night, and it was lightning, and it was uh, flooding, and, and so I talked with one of the men who was in charge of the benevolence, and I said, do you think it might be a good idea to get this young man out of the woods? It's lightning, and it's coming a flood, and it was going to do that for about three days. He said, let's give him a hotel room. I said, okay. So on the way to the hotel room, I explained to him, I said, now let me make something clear. The church is not in the business of keeping up the world. The church is in the business of spreading the gospel. The church is in the business of bringing people to Christ so they can learn what they need to do to get to heaven. Now, can we help people? Absolutely. Galatians chapter 6, we can help people. But I said... When our choices land us in a tent, you've got to rock the tent for a little while until your choices can get you out of the tent. See, that's what this young man was doing. He's sleeping with the pigs and he finally realized, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get back to where I know I need to be. He lost everything. He joined himself to a farmer. There's not a lot of gratification in that, is there? There's a lot of deprivation, though. As Jesus rehearsed His parable, the Pharisees would have been well pleased for it to have ended right there. After all, wasn't that young man getting exactly what he deserved? Wasn't that the issue in the first place? You've got sinners coming to you. You're eating with sinners. They're sinners, man. They're getting what they deserve. What's going on here? But he didn't want to stop there. He wanted that young man to repent. He wanted that young man to be saved. He wanted him to come home. The son needed to come home. He needed to repent. Those Pharisees would have been the very first one to say, that son is lost. But I want us to notice point number two. What about the sibling that he had? Was that young man lost? Do we read this parable and all we notice is this young man who went into the far country? We've got some more people living in that home, don't we? The brother's problem rested in his character. A lot of people view him as the one who was mistreated. One writer indicated this. He said, the older brother is made out to be a villain when the fact is that the baby brother has come to live on his, the elder brother's share of what's left of the family fortune. Tertullian, an early Christian, is quoted as saying, the parable of the prodigal son must never apply to Christians. Well, I don't know what he was reading, but he missed it. He missed it. 
See, he lived at a time when, when Christians were being put to death by Rome. He says God might forgive them if they drag them out into the street and threaten to cut their heads off unless they say uh, uh, Caesar is God. If they repent later on, God might forgive them, but the church should never forgive them. Is that how the church operates? Do you stand up and say, no, God is God, the emperor's not God? Absolutely. But you know, I've never been in that situation. I don't know what I'd do. But I hope if I sinned and I later came to myself, that not only God, but the church would forgive me for that. that the elder brother's not interested. He doesn't want to forgive anybody. His character was weak. He was quick to anger. Hey, he came in out of the field. He was laboring. He heard the music. He said, what's going on? Oh, well, we're having a feast. Your brother came home. What? We're having a feast. He was stubborn, wasn't he? He said, I'm not going in. Everybody was making merry out of love for the lost boy. He wouldn't go in, verse 28. He said, I'm not going in. I don't want to be around him. He's a sinner. He objected to the celebration. He would not attend. I want us to notice one thing, that his years of service to his father, they weren't done out of joy and love for his father. They were done out of a sense of duty because that's what I've got to do if I'm going to inherit anything. That's not right. That's not right. That's not how we operate. The principle of loving service is absent in the attitude of this elder brother, John fourteen fifteen. He was jealous also, wasn't he? Envious. You, you gave him the fatted calf. You never gave anything to me like that. Luke fifteen twenty nine. He had a martyr complex, didn't he? Oh, you've mistreated me over the years. I've been such a great son to you, and you've never done any of these things for me. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Well, did the father not just divide his life between those two men? Isn't that what the father said? All I've got is yours. He was selfish. He didn't have it in him to think of other people. Have you ever known someone who they're the only ones that's got a problem in the world? No one else has any issues. Nobody else has any health problems. Nobody else has family problems. Nobody else has marital problems. Nobody else is going broke, right? It's only me. That's this, that's this elder brother. Me, 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 me. That's not how it ought to be. That should have been one of the most joyous occasions in his life. The Lord would receive sinners, but the brother wouldn't. In his character, we see the problem really is his criticism, isn't it? He had a holier-than-thou attitude. If it were not so sad, it would be comical to listen to this statement, Luke fifteen twenty nine. Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Are you kidding me? You've been around all these many years, and you never one time transgressed one of His commandments. Now, I don't know about the father in the parable, but I know about rearing four daughters. And at some point, they're going to transgress a commandment. I've never transgressed. I'm, I'm holier than thou, and especially this boy that came back home. What's going on? 
Can you believe that? That's ridiculous. That's one of the most pompous lies ever recorded in the history of man. I've never done wrong. You know, there's a popular saying among people who are addicted to certain things. To get help, you've got to realize you need help. This boy needs to realize he's wrong. He needs to realize he needs to repent. He was blinded to his own deficits, but he was quick to point out someone else's. Holier than thou. Now that signifies certain things. That signifies that, that I can point out your fault, and I'm not going to notice my own, because you know what? I've never transgressed a commandment. All these many years, I've never done a thing against you. But now let's talk about what you're doing. You know how God described that? Notice Isaiah 65, verse 5. Which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. How many of us want smoke in our nose? We'll sit around a campfire and we'll keep circling that campfire. We get to where that smoke's not getting in our face, don't we? You know, when someone has a holier-than-thou attitude, that's like smoke in the face of God. He doesn't like that. He doesn't want that. It's like a fire in his nose. I think we can boil, our, boil the young man down to pride. And I can't help but believe pride is an abomination to God because its origin exists in self-deception. Notice what Paul, uh, Solomon said, Proverbs 6, 16-19. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. I've never done a thing, but you're causing all kinds of problems. God hates that. Who's lost here? Well, the son was lost. Ain't no doubt about it. The sibling was lost. The older brother's in trouble. We're going to close on this third point, and it's not going to take long. I want us to notice something that maybe we haven't usually noticed. Let's consider the servants. The son, the sibling, and the servants. Now, we're introduced to the two sons in the first verse of the parable. But the servants are not mentioned until verse 17. After all the bad things have happened. Where were the servants when that young man was coming up with this wonderful idea to go off into the far land and waste everybody's money? Give his life over to sin and Satan and to live like a heathen lives? Where were the servants? Were none of those servants after all those years of living in that home, watching that boy grow up, did he not have one servant counted as a friend to him? that said, don't do that. You're making a mistake. Now they may have, but it's not recorded. I think we can make some kind of application there. What are we supposed to do when we see our brethren making mistakes? We need to go to them and beg them and tell them, look, don't do that. God has no delight in even the wicked being destroyed. He wants them to repent, Ezekiel 33 verse 11. The love for a brethren is a direct reflection of our love for God. Didn't Jesus give a new commandment when He said, John 13, beginning with verse 34, Love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, 
if you have love one to another, we've got to reach out to our brethren. When they're slipping up and they're making mistakes, you know, is it enjoyable? No. Is it fun to rebuke somebody? No. Is it fun to tell someone where they're wrong? No. Is it fun to be told you're wrong? No. I can tell you that from personal experience. That's not enjoyable to be told you're wrong. But you know what? If someone loves you and they want you to get to heaven, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, Rick, you're doing that wrong and you need to stop it because I love you. We need to have some backbone and say, look, you're living in such a way that's going to cost you your soul. We've got to lead people back to God. If we don't attempt to rescue our fallen brethren, we're not leading and we're certainly not leading them in the right direction. Let's visit with them. Let's encourage them. We ought to be able to see the signs of danger if we build a relationship. You know, sometimes people just disappear. But you know, Nathan Nathan went to David and told him a parable that touched his heart, didn't he? And through that parable, he showed David that he needed to repent. 2 Samuel 12, 1-14. I think one of the greatest things that I've always overlooked is that Nathan sought out David. Why? David was lost. He couldn't find his way home. Someone's got to go rescue him. He'd be home if he could be home. He can't get home. We're lost. Have you ever been lost? Man, when I was about 14, I went squirrel hunting. And I got lost in about a 500-acre area. I didn't think I was ever going to come home. I was scared to death. I finally came out 20 miles from my house. Boy, I was glad to see that highway, though. David was lost. He couldn't come back home. He didn't know the way. When people are lost, they need someone to get them by the hand and lead them back if they'll come. But they'll never come if we don't reach out to them. They'll never stop doing the things they don't need to be doing unless we tell them. We'll never do that unless someone tells us. We need to show a love for one another. The son was lost. The sibling was lost. But you know what? The servant can be lost as well. Right there at home thinking they're doing exactly what they need to be doing and lost all the time. We need to think about that. Let's look after our brethren. If you've never obeyed the gospel, you're lost. You don't know the way home. Well, Jesus has reached out His hand and He's told us, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He's reaching down. All we have to do is grab His hand. All we have to do is be obedient. Faith that He is who He said He was. Confession that He died on the cross. That He is the Son of God. He came out of there. He's ruling today at the right hand of the Father over the kingdom right now. Get down into the water for remission of sins. Be buried. Come back up. Walk in a new life and live faithfully for Him. If you've done all those things and you've gone off into the far country, look, that happens sometimes. Be ashamed of what you've done, but don't be ashamed to come back. Come back. We'll lead you by the hand and help you come back. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that right now as we stand and as we sing.